Welcome to Resilience Rising. I'm your host, Sean Costigan, Managing Director of Resilience Strategy at Red Sift. Today, we are delving into our recent exploration of the intricate world of corporate risk management and cybersecurity. We're doing this with Annie Searle, a distinguished expert in the field of operational risk management. In this episode, we'll look into the intricacies of notorious corporate scandals, including cases like Theranos and Wells Fargo. And we'll examine what companies can do to improve their understanding and management of cybersecurity risk. My pleasure to introduce Annie Searle, principal of Annie Searle & Associates. Annie helps companies build world-class risk programs. An internationally known expert in operational risk management with extensive experience in the financial, IT, and emergency services sectors, she thrives on complex challenges. Annie spent the last decade teaching the next generation of risk and cybersecurity leaders at the University of Washington's Information School, while using her risk practice to write, speak, and publish through the ASA Institute for Risk and Innovation. She's a lifetime member of the Institute of American Entrepreneurs and an inaugural inductee of the Hall of Fame for the International Network of Women in Emergency Management and Homeland Security. So thanks, Annie. And Maybe you want to fill in a little bit more if I've missed anything or glossed over anything in your... No, it sounds like a eulogy at a funeral. No. Um, <laughs> um, I, think that's more, I think that's more than it. It's, a, it's very impressive. And I know you've done many things that are not captured properly in the bio. I'm sure we'll have the opportunity when we talk. Maybe more things will come out. So, Annie, what corporate scandals have really surprised or shocked you over the past few years? Can you give us any examples? The most interesting case to me that continues to be a case is that of Wells Fargo, which has been under the thumb of the Federal Reserve and the Securities and Exchange Commission for how many years? The first attempts to correct problems in what was perceived to be the consumer banking area where staff were made to invent accounts for customers who hadn't asked for them to get up to eight kinds of pieces of business with a customer. The CEO's motto was eight is great. And supervisors in that area actually pounded on their people to go out and to cold call mm -hmm. or to use members of their family or to dip into the customer database and just invent accounts for auto insurance a credit card no one asked for, a variety of things. And this is an old and valued institution that had a great reputation and a pretty pristine credit quality for a long time. The regulators stepped in. They're heavily fined. The size of the fines seem sound large to us, but it's like Kleenex to an institution that makes a lot of money every year. They switched CEOs, brought in, promoted someone from within who was part of that culture. He failed. So they brought in a man, and the CEO knew is, in fact, one of Jamie Dimon's successors at Chase. He came from Chase. I knew him because he handled the takeover of Washington Mutual when Chase bought Washington Mutual. He's tried as well. But we continue to see Chase in the eye of the hurricane where the regulators are concerned. They continue to be fine. They can't seem to correct the culture. 
so that's where the that's where my analysis there is that that no matter how hard they try, the behavior at the top somehow does not mirror the behavior down below, which is the opposite of the way things are supposed to work. Things are supposed to be monkey see, monkey do, right? Troubling and fascinating all at once. So what do you think that investors should be looking out for now? Let me go back or stick with Wells for a moment, because the only time the Federal Reserve has really stepped in where a board is concerned, specifically, very in a very tactical way, is with the Wells board. And they required that Wells replace three people on their board, and they required the kind of background. They specified the kinds of backgrounds those people had to have. And that would be an understanding sufficient to provide oversight from a risk perspective. Tone at the top means it means what your mission statement says. It says it means what your code of conduct says. But past that, it is the exemplification of those values in behavior. And so what you often see, and this would be true at Wells, it is ma managers at a lower level are concerned that they receive their annual bonuses. And so Corners get cut and goals get modified and unacceptable behavior is frequently acceptable in the interest of the bonus. Maybe the risk or the problem is reported to the manager above that person. But I find that increasingly as the reports go up in the organization, not just to the C-suite, but to the board. The risks become more sanitized, so they don't appear to be as problematic as they might be. At Washington Mutual, we were told that there were a few problems in the home loans department, that there was an operational risk subcommittee in California, in fact, overseeing and disciplining people who wrote fraudulent loans or didn't handle the paperwork properly would be the way that would be described. So the magnitude, for instance, was not known to me. I was a senior vice president. Was the magnitude, does that mean that if I was at that level reporting to the CIO and to the chief risk officer, does that mean that it became even more sanitized when it went to the CEO? It's hard to know and it's hard to piece all of it together in a kind of coherent narrative. I have a review of a very good book that Kristen Grand wrote called The Lost Bank about Washington Mutual. The review turns out to, I just used the four lenses for operational risk to examine the bank over time, what happened to it and why it went away. And a failure to pay attention to signs that were imminent everywhere not only in the bank, but everywhere in the financial services landscape in 2007, even as early as 2006. And then certainly in 2008, when most of the collapses happened. The other thing was the chief risk officer for several years, the first chief risk officer that I reported to was the former CFO, where Wamu had pristine credit quality. Things shifted at the bank 
a new COO was brought in and he wanted to put more risk on the balance sheet. When did the bank, he thought it was too conservative. And that's where all of the inelegance, the fraudulent behavior with mortgages came in. But Bill Longbreak, who was the chief risk officer, former CFO, had for many years been, he's an, a PhD and an economist as well, had been presenting the board at monthly meeting, at its quarterly meetings with its uh, chief risk officer, an economic dashboard. And he'd been pointing to a housing bubble for at least five years before it happened. So very much not unlike what your FBI agent was saying on the steps of the Capitol. And I think there are other people. If you go back and look, you can see that there are many books written on how many signs there were, how many pieces could have been pulled together. Instead, you had many leaders at banks saying, that's not going to happen to us. We have a solution for that. We're going to work around this. We have a plan to get through this, and we will continue. But for Washington Mutual, mortgages became too important. They became too much of a profit area for the bank. And so excuses were made. And you could make that argument with most banks that run into trouble. Probably most companies that run into low. I'm sure Boeing's board said, and Boeing's CEO said many times, that's not going to happen to us. Let's say watch something, Airbus take a fine. That's not going to happen to us. And in that case, you have a board of directors totally unprepared to get into a situation where safety and life become the, the two main issues. And they affect not only the business that Boeing is in. The business Boeing is in is actually selling airplanes to airline companies. It's not making sure that your ride is smooth from uh, Seattle to Ireland. or It's not any of those things, but they became immense in issues that were larger issues that are fallout issues from the situation. Everything from training, how much training do pilots need to do? How much disclosure do we have to make on changes we're making to the architecture of the airplane? So, Annie, Boeing has been in the news quite a bit lately for quite a variety of problems. What do you think is happening at the top levels, particularly with the board? I think it's when the first plane fell out of the sky, you have a large board. It's a very diverse board. It's not necessarily a technically brilliant board. A couple of people. You don't have anyone who, who knows what to do. They're stunned. And they're waiting to see what the next step will be, waiting to see what the impact will be, waiting to see what the cause will be. Remember when that plane fell out of the sky and even the second plane, there was an attempt in the media, I'm not saying it came from Boeing, but there was an attempt to blame the pilots because they were foreign trained. They were not, they did not undergo the same rigor of training, shall we say, from an American point of view, that was the point of view. And you had many Boeing employees smugly going around saying, just wait, we'll see, pilot error. So that's an answer. And that seemed to be sufficient to lead Boeing to do nothing for a long time. Boeing never took a leadership position. Boeing has had to be pushed into every 
decision they've made, whether it's more training for pilots, whether it's what's up in the air. And Boeing is still, if you look, undergoing holds on certain things they can do and not do, not only with that model of plane, but with other planes. They're having all kinds of trouble in manufacturing that they're still grappling with. It's very interesting. To what extent do you think that group think is playing a role here? That's a, an, an article that I wrote for a board risk committee. That's a, I've got a quote, in fact, at the top of the article. On groupthink, probably, is the worst thing that can happen to a board. Not asking questions, not raising issues. That, to me, is the chief responsibility of a board member. That's what oversight means. Really questioning any major decision or any change of direction and looking at both worst case and best case for what might occur as a result of a decision that's made. I have some hypotheses, untested hypotheses that I'd offer here for why, why it's challenging when things are seen as progressive, particularly like Theranos was seen as progressive. It can be very hard for people, I think, to take a step back, even when things look obvious in, in retrospect or should have, there should have been due diligence. Again, there are many instances throughout new technologies where people look at things and say, that's new. There's, we won't, we're willing to take risks in ways that are different when it appears new or progressive. And that's my, I'm going to assert that, not, not suggest that's a hypothesis. But okay, on that note, let me go to that from time to time when things appear progressive, when there's something new, it, it, it's strange, but it seems like we throw out due diligence or we throw out various good models for how we handle risk. So any sort of new innovation, if that's a, that sounds like a redundancy there, but any sort of innovation should receive the same treatment and that any other development. But why is it, do you think, Annie, that when something is perceived as new or progressive, in quotes, that it seems like we just don't do the work that we could have that would have made it obvious that Theranos was odd or uh, perhaps there are problems with the plane or there are other issues? Help us unpack that. I'm speculating here. This is my hypothesis. I think that she was able to assemble a very distinguished board, none of whom had competencies in right. this area. And because if you're sitting next to the former secretary of state in a board meeting, or if you're talking to a retired general, you just look at the board to see that kind of thing. You tend to have confidence that you're in the right place with the right progressive company because of the other people who are there with you. Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of, I wouldn't say deliberate at all, but unconscious seeding of the oversight responsibility that is yours as a board member. I think every one of those board members should be asked, no one's going to ask them to do this, but to make statements about why they didn't understand Center that they had, they had no product, that the product did not work as described, however you want to put that. So they liked the idea. It looked like something that was going to help everyone. It looked like a public service kind of product. That's why I say, I think there's something there. It's, but it's interesting when people outsource their brain on risk. 
they, they'll step back and say, oh, why am I no longer asking critical questions? When in my career, I would have always asked That's critical right. questions. Presumably, those people got to be in powerful positions because they thought about things and they thought it wasn't just because of groupthink. They had, they had all, I'd like to think that they had asked the right questions at the right time. And so something about these is peculiar to me. And I think part of it is the technology. I think part of it is that they, and they may not be the right people because they can't, they don't know the technology or they don't, but once you put two things together, public service, and you did that just now, you said there's a public service that's being done. And other technologies are presented as that too, planes that are more efficient. So when I was looking at one of your articles, you talked about informed board members, bringing us one step closer to corporate stability. So what does that mean? What is, what's the information that they should be getting that would bring corporate stability about in a better way? What level of information are we talking about? And, and start with that question. I think... No, I'm going to step into making generalizations when actually it varies according to sector and size of organization. But the first responsibility is laid out in Sarbanes-Oxley, in SOX, a regulation now that's so old. I think it's 2000 or 2002. But it says that directors on boards are responsible for direct supervision of the company. So that means everything from being able to read a balance sheet and ask questions about it, being able to take an inquiring, if not somewhat aggressive approach to any new project proposed or change in direction, and being willing to speak up. So only now are we coming out of the era that I was in when I was at the bank. It's hard to believe it's 14 years ago I left the bank. But at that time, CEOs were often the president of the board as well as being the CEO. And they, were, they really ran the nominating committee of the board, which is where your new board members come from. When board members retire, someone has to be proposed, then that's the committee. Uh, that's chummy with the CEO often in companies. You want a board that looks like you and sounds like you. We're, now we're pretty much past that. We have more regulation. We can see from the latest uh, SEC rulemaking that they're going to tighten things somewhat, not as much as they might have, it looked like initially, but they're going to tighten up on, on making companies describe the process by which decisions are made where risk is concerned. They're not going to make them give a grade to every board member in terms of their competence to understand risk or oversee, but they're going to make them describe the process rather clearly. And they're also forcing companies, not as much as GDPR is doing, but close to that, they're forcing them on the disclosure requirements on breach. How much of that does a board member have to understand? I think what I'm tending to see is often companies are taking their boards offsite and spending days or a couple of days. I think organizations like NACD, where those are board members from a variety of companies, all in pursuit of better understanding, especially of cyber and risk. 
So I think some of that is getting better. That isn't to say that it won't happen again, but the responsibility, the primary responsibility is to to be able to attest and to sign off on a balance sheet that the financial reporting is accurate and truthful. And CEOs and CFOs can still go to jail and incur a large fine if that's not true when they sign. Past that, it, I think it, it differs. And I think the reason that often we don't see more board members who are, say, former CEOs or who are CISOs on boards is because that expertise isn't really well understood. The CISO expertise isn't understood. And also, frankly, we have a, I'm sure you probably don't want to take it in this direction, but we have a, a long line of CISOs who are just not good at speaking or explaining at a high level. And if one can't make the explanation at a high level, it's hard to reach a board member to get them to understand the gravity of the situation. They don't have a way to take the information you're giving them and process it properly, particularly if a breach has occurred. I think there's a possibility there for really bad behavior from the board or the C-suite in terms of wanting to punish people. I, if it's happened in the United States, I'm not familiar with it. I can't name a case. I guess I can from Enron, right? The CEO of Enron had a jail sentence, and I believe he died before he could serve the time or while he was serving the time. That's really... In terms of my reading, that's all I can attribute. We haven't seen, so we have SOX, which says the board has oversight responsibility. Then we have to go all the way to the Wyndham Hotel case, where the court said that the board of directors has a specific oversight responsibility where security and digital trust is concerned. And they can be, and it says they can be fined for a lack of oversight. And, and that's personal. That's personal liability then at that point, right? I think so. Yeah. I, I don't, I'm not aware of any prosecutions as a result of statements made on 10 case. It's just not to say that I don't, it could be if one of those were levied, that would snap things into place and people would stop partaking in certain kinds of behavior, but it's not clear. And I think part of the reason is the, the difficulty in establishing blame or responsibility. It, cyber is a really gray area for making things crisp. And this happened here and then this decision was made and that decision was made. I think the response generally still to breach is to clean out some of the C-suite and make sure they get a new CISO at the same time and probably call in uh, a famous company to examine all of their practices and make recommendations. Really deep, deeply challenging stuff. If you think about the pipeline for CISOs, there, there, there aren't that many. So you addressed one issue, which was CISOs and their ability to, or inability to crosswalk to 
operations, largely to enterprise level operations. So many of them don't have that skill set, right? They came from a different uh, sort of career progression. And so that's one issue. There aren't that many. Uh, and I think that may also be one of the reasons, I've not read all the public comments on this, but one of the reasons that there's there been so many questions about what the board should know about cybersecurity risks when it came to the SEC rules. It just, it's not, and then you mentioned as well that there's a gray area. There are a variety of gray areas. So let's take one in particular, we get in the weeds a little bit perhaps, but on the four-day rule. So the four-day rule, as I understand it now, it's four days after the company understands that it was a material incident. So it's not four days after an incident, right? That's your first sign. That it's after an understanding of the incident, right? That it, that it becomes material uh, in there. And then they will want to report it. So this is, I think that's an, it's an interesting shift. What do you make of that? I think that firms lobbied hard and got an adjustment on by explaining various kinds of ways breaches can occur and how long it takes sometimes to determine whether something is material or not. The intent of the SEC was probably initially to be generous by 24 hours, right? Because they're giving them more than 72 hours. But I think this is just a, something, and I'm sorry if I, I may just have gotten used to it, from having looked at this stuff for a long time, this would be a normal pushback for financial services in particular, but really all large companies that suffer breaches to do, to, be, to argue that they should be given the ability to determine materiality. And I think we have to see what it looks like more particularly as its shape to see whether or not the kind of reporting they're going to have to do is going to give us a timeline for it at the same time. This happened, and then three weeks later, this happened. We didn't put the two things together, and then this happened, and now we've determined they are all three related, and it is material, and that's why we're reporting it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's how the reporting will look, though. The other thing to pay attention to seriously on the rulemaking is the out or the provision that says if your breach is connected in any way, shape, or form with national security, you get another 30 days. And the attorney general can intervene to attest to the fact that there are national security issues involved. So that lets Microsoft, Google, you want me to keep going? A number of companies, that gives them an extra 30 days from whenever, whatever they're going to come up with past those four days and the determination of materiality. And though the SEC is asking for a description, and I think this will be in the 10K, of what the process is by which decisions are made and then conveyed or the board participates in the decision-making. I think that's an important part that didn't get changed. Probably most C-suite people saw that as harmless, but actually that could be really useful. So I think there, there's, there, there are several issues that strike me in this conversation. The, 
The first is at the at enterprise level risk that we now know exists because of problems with cybersecurity for companies or problems broadly in cybersecurity. That is there a path that you see, and how much time do you think it will take before we grow the necessary expertise at the board level? And I can give you some examples now of where I've seen boards be more proactive, and you probably have seen this as well, right? So we tend to look at things negatively. We look at things like the examples of things that didn't go well, but there are examples where boards did well. Most recently, Wall Street Journal had a great article of a CEO in a German firm, Evotech, that when he was told there was a, a significant breach, he went out and made it part of his mission to talk to stakeholders, to talk to everybody who was involved, the company, the regulators, anyone who might potentially be involved. And I look at that and say, is that a new model? Is that the beginning of a new model? Do we always have to wait for regulation or can we see a possible generational change in leadership at, at the C-suite and in the board where they start to recognize, look, cyber is just part of the operational risk or the is that example, just too hopeful? No, I, I think that's fine. I think you know, you take a company like J.P. Morgan Chase with Jamie Dimon, go back and look at the London Whale example, which is now in the past probably 14, 15, 16 years. It was a something like a $6 billion fine they incurred for that. Many white papers that diagnosed what was wrong, where in the organization, how Jamie Dimon could possibly have appeared on a on an investor call and said nothing was wrong, how he could have been let out to speak. Uh, it's clear he believed what he was saying, nothing was wrong, wasn't a problem, they had it handled. His behavior since then, since that time has been pretty exemplary. He has a, a really good board that challenges him a lot and he tends to speak up more as the hatter familiar for the banking industry. He likes to say that J.P. Morgan Chase is the nation's bank because it's bailed out other banks and has a good history. So I think that's good. I think for all our sort of negative focus on examples we know about through the media, there aren't actually as many examples of bad behavior or non-behavior or fines than there were in the past. Even though we have regulatory agencies in the United States, we have the Consumer Financial Protection Board as well, for example. We have the OCC with a much larger role than it had before in regulation. And we have the Federal Reserve and the NCC really strong, I think, for guidance, which, which goes back to uh -huh. what can companies do? I think a the mere fact that a CEO sends his board members to NACD meetings is a very good sign. Um, and I think that's a level at which board members should be oriented and trained. I, that They get a, an appreciation of what an appropriate level of information would be. But in point of fact, we still have this gap operationally with the security apparatus where we're not good at explaining what the threats are or why the investment will pay off or assembling 
a kind of research history of the threat in terms that even a C-suite executive can understand. You could make an argument that cybersecurity risk broadly against critical infrastructure, particularly critical infrastructure companies, you could make an argument that government should take a more active role in defending, in defending critical infrastructure. But that doesn't jive very well with private control of critical infrastructure and all the challenges that are there when you have yep. so much private enterprise. And so you and I, I know in, in, in our classes, you know, where you've invited me to speak, we've talked about this a bit too, but that tension doesn't seem to want to give up, especially in the face of cybercrime that continues to grow. At what point do you think this sort of security fatigue sets in and, and, and people just say, look, this, I can't be responsible uh, for everything. Where is government? I, Why isn't government protecting me? You're right in my, you're right in my sweet spot now. That's what post-teaching, I'm pretty determined on going back to something I did before I started to teach, which was really exhorting people on public-private partnerships, particularly with how I see CISA as having become such an important agency over a relatively short period of time, really establishing strong relationships with private sector companies and being willing to share and step down and onto a discourse platform rather than here's what you need to do. Here's the kit we've designed for you for cyber hygiene. Here's the kit we've designed for you for, and that's the end of it. So I'm very pleased about that. I think the government has done more. The government target probably to this day wouldn't know they'd been hacked if it weren't for the FBI. They wouldn't have a clue. And the FBI has been going around explaining that to a lot of people. A lot of company. The implementation plan for through the Office of the National Cyber Director is huge that Biden has just laid that out pretty well. And I'm looking at the list. So there are 65 initiatives assigned to 18 agencies with timelines. And the ransomware task force is CISA and the FBI, software bill of materials, CISA and International Work Group. International Interagency Cybersecurity Standardization is NIST, and International Cyberspace and Digital Policy Standard is the Department of State, interestingly enough. So I think things are moving there. And part of my job in going out and speaking, at least some of the speaking I'll be doing, will be really urging firms to assign a person, probably from their cyber organization, directly to attendance in the regional infrastructure security group that CISA offers in each of the regions. Deeply fascinating, Annie. So do you have any other recommendations as you think about what to do to improve cybersecurity for companies going forward, whether that's at the board level or the C-suite or internationally? What I've recommended in some cases in off-the-record conversations with members of boards is that there be a committee of the board uh, separate from the audit committee called something like the risk committee, because I see risk as overarching and in including cyber. And I think there ought to be a relationship between the board members on that committee at the board level 
and the cyber organization itself. It has to be really carefully managed. And I know that breaks boundaries where, you know, staff is not ever supposed to interact with a board member unless they're hauled in to make a report. But I think we need better advocacy from the board, the part of the board that is charged with the responsibility for risk, better advocacy to the rest of the board, especially if they're not getting it from the CEO. And that still is the case. It's no fun to be a CEO, right? You got probably 23 issues a day you deal with. Cyber is but one of them. Brilliant. That's a great way to end it. Thanks once again, Annie, for your expertise and generosity. For those who just listened to Resilience Rising, we trust you enjoyed our compelling conversation with Annie Searle. Many thanks for tuning in.